The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. You'll pardon me today because I'm out of practice. And we'll see how this goes. Acts chapter 13, and this morning I'd like to do something that I haven't done for quite a long time. Uh, I'm going to preach a Father's Day sermon. Uh, For several years, what we've done is just follow along with the regular study that we've had in the Gospel of Matthew. And since we are now coming to the last chapter of Matthew, and we'll be ending that study in just a few weeks... Uh, Our next part is about the resurrection, so I decided that uh, we might just delay that a little bit, and I'd speak to you on a different subject today. Uh, We've been through several heavy passages in the past few weeks. Uh, Chapter 27 was a very difficult chapter in dealing with the sufferings of Christ on the cross, so I thought we'd just take a break today and we do things uh, in a little bit easier way. Uh, I've already learned, as I've told you before, that on Mother's Day... On Mother's Day, you have to have a special sermon. You can't, you, you can't do without that. And I, I learned that lesson the hard way. So this year, Father's Day message, that's just a little bit of a bonus that you're going to get. And today's message is actually more about men in general than it is about fathers. So all of you men can relate to this. And I'm taking my text from here in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse number 14. I'm going to ask you to stand once again as we read God's Word. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, Say oh, and I have to stop there for just a minute. The Apostle Paul, what he was always doing was going into the synagogues in these different cities that he visited to preach. And can you imagine the opportunity here that uh, the ruler of the synagogue stands up and says, "If anybody would have anything they'd like to say, say it." Whoa, that's the Apostle Paul. He's ready now, and so he begins to preach a sermon. And verse number sixteen. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, "Men of Israel, and ye that fear God." Give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings of this day. Thank you for the reading of your word. Bless us as we study today and deliver your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. 
I'd like you to notice particularly the beginning of verse number 22. It says, and when he had removed him. Now, what you might think that I've chosen today to study, to talk about is, is David. But this part of the verse that I just asked you to look at again would help you to understand, and the title of the message would help you, I think, to understand that David is not our subject today. In the end of verse 22, God said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Now, my message today is about the man that you don't want to be. And reading this about David, that's the man that you do want to be. Uh, David is a man who is after God's own heart. And the man that I want to talk to you about today is not him, but the man who was the predecessor to David, and that was King Saul. Now, David was a man, of course, who had his faults, and there were sins that David committed that were very grievous, um, even hard to imagine that a man like David could do. But David was a man that always returned to God in repentance, who always had dependence upon God. And so he came to him in repentance and faith when he sinned, and that made him a much different man than Saul. The man that you want to be is a man who trusts God, a man who, when things are going wrong, that you know that God is the one that you can always depend on, that you know that God has said in his word that I will never leave you or forsake you. And David certainly did believe that. He could always count on the promise that God would be there for him. Now, before I comment more about Saul and that aspect of him, I want to expand on this thought for just a minute as it relates to uh, the studies that we had just a few weeks ago. Some of the most striking quotes that Jesus gave while he was hanging on the cross were from a psalm that David wrote. That was Psalm chapter 22. And in that psalm, the very first verse, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you know, we studied that passage as we looked at Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, that he quoted that psalm. The people very well knew, the Jews especially knew what he was referring to because they understood and they read the psalms. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as you go on reading in that psalm, you find other things that happened on the cross. It talks about the scorning mockers. It speaks about the bones of Christ that were out of joint. There are comments about his strength that was gone and about them taking his clothes from him. It talks about the piercing of his hands and his feet. And we have to know this, that David first spoke those words, so there has to be some kind of metaphorical relationship to David's experiences in that psalm. And yet as closely as that, as that psalm parallels the, the, the sufferings of Christ on the cross, it departs from that theme at verse number 24. And there David wrote, For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. That's part of David's experience. That's not a part of Jesus' sayings on the cross. Christ on the cross could never say that God did not desert him. David had never been abandoned by God. And when he cried out to God, God heard him. But we know that Jesus was forsaken by the Father, and the Father gave him no help. He gave him no comfort as he suffered and died for our sins. He was rejected and he was afflicted. And so if for no other reason that you wouldn't want to be Saul, the main one is this. You don't want to be the one that God forsakes. You don't want to be rejected by God. 
And you don't want to end up like Saul, especially for eternity, that you'll be forever rejected by God because of unbelief. Now, what I've done this morning <clears throat> is to break into this sermon that Paul preached on his first missionary journey. Uh, he was visiting the city of Antioch in Pisidia. And what we read here in Acts chapter 13 is actually the only full text sermon of Paul that we find in Scripture. Now, we do find bits and pieces of Paul's sermons, but this is the only one in Scripture that we have from the beginning to the end. And if you ever wonder, do, do preachers ever preach other preachers' sermons? Maybe you think about that sometimes. We'll, we'll take a moment to compare this sermon to the one that Paul heard Stephen preach in Acts chapter 7. Now, you read that chapter and Paul listened to Stephen preach, and then after the preaching of his sermon, he consented to Stephen's death. And that was an indication he didn't very much like that sermon that Stephen preached. But then God saved Paul, and one of the first sermons that he preached as a missionary sounded a lot like the one that he heard Stephen preach in Acts 7. And so probably there were many times that, that Paul preached this message as he visited those synagogues of the Jews. And in this sermon, Paul is driving towards his favorite subjects. That would be the death and the resurrection of Christ. It would be that we're justified by our faith in Christ alone and not by any of the keeping of commandments or works that we have done. And as he was on his way to reaching those conclusions, Paul passed through the history of Israel. And he gives us this little short section about Saul. Now, I've told you that to, to give you a little bit of the background of the passage because what I never like to do is just drop you into a text and you have no idea what's going on. Paul is not here in this passage emphasizing Saul. He's not emphasizing Saul, but that's what I'm going to do today. And so whenever you hear a preacher that reads a text and then he pulls something strange out of it and he acts like that's the main point of the passage, you better watch out. Because what we need to do is preach the Word of God in its context. So I'm telling you right up front here that we're just taking out this one little section about Saul to talk about him. That's going to be our emphasis. What we learn about here in verse number 22, that Saul was removed from being Israel's king. Now Saul's time of history came between two of the greatest men in all of Israel's history. On one side of him was Samuel the prophet. And Samuel was the greatest judge of Israel. On the other side of him is King David. David is the greatest king of Israel. And you wonder, how, how could, uh, could Saul possibly stand out between those two great men? And he did stand out, but not in a good way. Now, he stood out because he's, as we'll read in a moment, that he stood head and shoulders of other people. He was a very tall man. But when you compare Saul to Samuel and to King David, you find a spiritual dwarf. Saul was not a spiritual man. He was not the man that God wanted him to be. So he was, a, he was the middle man between these two great men. He was a king like David was. He was the people's choice but not the man that he should have been. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is where the story of Saul begins. Uh, it's before Israel had a king. And it's uh, when Samuel had been ruling the country for many years. But now Samuel is old and he needed a successor to take over the reins of government. 
And next in line to Samuel would have been his sons. And what Samuel fully intended was that his sons would take over after he was gone. But his sons were not trustworthy. They weren't godly, as Samuel was. And when the people saw how corrupt that they were, they didn't want Samuel's sons to rule over them. And instead, they wanted a king, like all the nations that were around them. Now again, Samuel was the greatest judge. He was a good judge. And the way that he ruled Israel was much in the same way that Moses and Joshua had ruled. That is, that they were in a direct relationship with God in a theocratic government. But the people wanted something different from that. And we see in the beginning of this chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, what God actually thought of that choice. And so we read here, 1 Samuel 8 verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not rule over them. Now verse number 7, this is the big elephant in the room here. This is the thing that you simply cannot miss and that is, you'll see on your listening sheet today, number one, the foolish choice. The foolish choice that's made by these people. God said, they have rejected me that I should reign over them. And the first thing that we have to recognize when we decide what kind of men we're going to be is what choice are we going to make about God? Are we going to follow him? Are we going to walk in the ways that God has told us to, do, to go? Or are we going to make this thing of our lives be about us? That rather than glorifying God, we want to do what we want to do. We want things to be all about us. And that's the way that we choose to live our lives. We never give God the thoughts that he deserves, never give him the service that he deserves. But we just want to go the way that we want to go and do what we want to do. Now, for sure, as this story begins, Saul was not the one who picked himself to be the king. When he was approached to be the king, we'll see in just a few minutes that he was very reluctant about it. And the people that made him a king, Saul didn't seize the throne. It was men that made him the king. Now, there's a little bit of a point that I'd like to make about that, that this wasn't the female demographic that you can blame for Saul's ascendance to the throne. Uh, in 2012, the Gallup poll said that the gender gap for Obama was the largest in history. So you know where you put the blame, uh, who, who, you can, who you can blame for that, so you can make whatever point of that that you want to make. But it's the men that made Saul the king. The females didn't have any say in this. Every decision that was made was a man's decision. And these men decided that they were going to reject God's rule in favor of their manly man. And not once did we ever find in the scripture did they ask about him, is he a godly man? Is he a man that's going to lead us in the paths that God wants us to go? Is this a spiritual man? Is this the real man or is this the guy that God wants us to have? They never asked that question. And have you noticed that in, in, our, in our country today, that even among Christians, that nobody stops to ask this question about our leaders? 
Is that a godly man? Is that somebody that God wants us to have? Is that somebody who's going to uphold the truth of God's word? Or is this somebody that's going to lead us down the path of all the evil that we're experiencing in the world today? Are we going to accept the, the social agendas and everything that people want? Or are we going to choose somebody who wants to walk in God's path? Christians don't even ask that question any longer. It's the party or it's whatever they want to choose. They never think about whether men are godly men. And that's given us the leadership that we've had for so many years. Christians have not stood up to choose the men that ought to be chosen. So they never ask this. Is this God's plan? But we also have to ask, did this work against God's plan? Is God not in this? Does God know, not know what's going to happen here? And those, those kinds of questions will throw a, a monkey wrench into the theology, our theology of the sovereignty of God. And that's until you read the whole story here. And you see that what God allowed these people to do was to teach them a lesson about what happens when you don't depend upon God. When you don't give yourself to God in His way. Now God has His permissive will and He has His perfect will. And in his permissive will, he allows things to happen that he doesn't sanction. He allows sin to take place that he has no part of. But God already knows how those things are going to turn out. And God already knows how he's going to work those things into that sovereign plan. And what you need to learn about this is that you have got to stay completely on track with God. Or what will happen is that God will allow you to do some things that you'll never be able to get rid of the scars once you've done them. God allows people to step outside the path where they should be going and he teaches us a lesson that we have got to depend on him every single day of our lives. Now I'll give you a, bit, a big example of what happens. There, there are decisions that we make with our children, with our families. There are times that, that we choose against, we reject God in some of the family decisions that we make. When you decided that you were going to become a soccer mom, or in this case, maybe a soccer dad, and, and you decided that you were going to let outside activities take over the time of God's worship, what you have done is you've rejected God. You know, I, I read a very interesting article just a couple of weeks ago that I wish all of you could read. And this was how a man was talking about how that, that he, he wanted his children in church where they could be in a place where they worship, that they dedicated their day to God's service. And that's where he wanted to raise them. And he knew that that was going to go counter to, to, to what a lot of people think and a, a lot of ways that people plan. But he wanted his children to be in church. And when you decide that you're going to let your children sleep in on Sunday and not go to Sunday school, and you decide to let them go to other activities instead of being in God's house, what you've done is rejected God's way. The man that you ought to be is a man who leads your family to worship God on the day that God says that we are to worship Him. And if you don't do that, you're going to be sorry at some time. Now, uh, you, you've rejected God. There's nothing wrong with playing ball. That's a good and healthy thing to do. But when you decided that you were going to let those kinds of things take over God's time, it's rejecting God. Uh, you might have given your kids that t-shirt that says, Resolve, we'll live for God. But then you said, Surely that can't mean on Sundays too. That can't mean on ball game times. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God said, Teach my commandments diligently to your children. 
He said, talk of them when you're at home. Talk about them when you go to bed. Talk about them when you get up. Talk about when you leave your house. Keep talking about my commandments. And then in Proverbs it says, when your children are old, they will not depart from it. But what's happened is that we've decided that our way is better. So now there are many people in churches that have kids that they can't do anything with. They allowed them to do what they wanted to do when they should have been in the Lord's house. And so you made a foolish choice. And you decided that fun and socializing and those kinds of things were more important than being in church. God knows what you're doing. And sometimes what God does, he just lets you go. And then you learn the lesson that it would have been far better to listen to God in the first place. Now, if you look there in verse, the first verse of chapter 8, it says that Samuel was old. And what they were thinking about doing was putting the old guy out to pasture. Get somebody who's new and exciting in there. Uh, get some new policy. Switch things up. Let's make things different. Let's, let's get a different way of doing things. And haven't churches done that? Uh, old guys with old ideas like me? Get those kind of fellas out. Uh, we don't need all that doctrinal teaching. We don't need that stuff. Give us a rock band. Give us uh, some Christian rap or whatever that is. And, and let's just liven up these services a little bit. Things are just too dead around here. Let's, let's do something different. And that's what these people thought. Give us something new and exciting. And Saul was their rock band, so to speak. Getting word directly from God, that's not good enough anymore. And so God said to Samuel, Samuel, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. And if you've been around to many churches, what you'll find is sorry men playing foolish teenage games in church. Now secondly, we notice the future king. If you keep on reading here in 1 Samuel 8, you'll find the protest that Samuel made against Israel and against their foolish choice. He was a preacher that sounded an alarm about what would happen when they decided they were going to walk this path. And let me just tell you a little bit about that too. Don't be angry at a preacher who sounds the alarm and tells you what you need to do. Don't be angry when someone preaches to you the truth and it steps on your toes and you, and you just don't like it and you say, well, I'm not going to hang around there anymore. Don't go find a preacher that's going to tickle your ears and tell you exactly what you want to hear because you'll never become a spiritual man in that kind of church. You need somebody to tell you how to live for God. Somebody's going to teach the Bible to you and doesn't abandon the scriptures. That's what you need in the church. Now at first, Saul was very reluctant to become the king. It appeared that he did have some characteristics that you really want in a leader. If you look over in chapter 9, in verse number 2, it describes him as the son of Kish. And there isn't any reason that you should know that name in particular. And that's kind of the point here. That Saul was a nobody. He was from a no-name family. Nobody really knew any much, much about them. So in 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, it says, And he had a son, that is, Kish had a son, whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So what do you want in a leader? Well, you might start with this. You want someone who's a top-notch 
physical specimen, someone who's tall and handsome. And that would be like I, what I was when I became the pastor. But 12 years of dealing with you has been giving me, giving me gray hair, cut six inches off my height, so it's been a very difficult time. But this is what you might look for. And Saul was really good looking. He was physically strong. As I said, stood head and shoulders above the people. If you had a bully to fight, Saul's the guy that you want. I mean, somebody picks on you, you just remind them, hey, my friend is Saul. And you bring Saul to your fight. And that worked really well as long as everybody was smaller than Saul. But do you remember what happened when Goliath showed up? What did Saul do? Well, Saul stayed up in the hills. He let David, who's a 17-year-old skinny shepherd boy, go down in the valley to fight Goliath. Now, to his credit, what Saul did, I mean, he was a big guy. I mean, he was a, he was a guy who was really going to help. So he lent David his armor, something that was too big and heavy for David to even wear. But you know why Saul didn't fight? It's because he had zero trust in God. David was a man after God's own heart. And Saul was a man after Saul's own hide. That's what interested him. Saving face and pride, that's Saul's objective. And you remember that when David killed Goliath, that all the people began to sing the praises of David. And that angered Saul. And he was jealous of him. And so Saul spent the rest of his life trying to kill the man that he should have been. But that's not the way that Saul started. Look in chapter 9, verse 21. And Saul answered and said... Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? So Samuel is talking to Saul and Saul says, Why did you approach me? Who am I? I'm a nobody. Why did you want me? My family is the smallest in Israel. Why do you want me? Well, that looked like a super feature. He starts out as a humble man. This is the guy that you want because it looks like he has a super future ahead of him. And what you never want to do is to choose someone for leadership who's always telling you how qualified they are to do it. That they're always tooting their horn about how good they are. And you've got to watch out for preachers that accept the adoration of the people. And when you do, there's going to be trouble ahead for the church. What you don't want to have is a self-made man instead of a God-made man. If you have a self-made man who's in your pulpit, then your church is going to be in big trouble. Now, voice number, verse number 2 says, Saul was a choice young man. Now, that's, that's an interesting saying because what it literally means, I mean, this is the literal interpretation, he was in the full flower of manhood. I don't think we would use that expression today. I think you explain, I understand why. I probably don't need to explain that. Well, flowers and manhood just don't seem to go together. But what it actually means is he's at his peak physically. The best specimen that he could be, the tallest, the best looking guy, he's Captain America with a twist or Captain Israel in this case. So that's Saul. And everybody was all about Saul. They, they were excited about this. They were charged up that he's going to be our king. But he's not God's choice. And he's not the man that you want to be. Now it's interesting that even Samuel kind of got caught up in this. Because when God rejected Saul, Samuel went to find the king that God had actually anointed. That he wanted to be the king of Israel. And that was David. 
And Saul started out, or rather Samuel started out looking for another Saul as far as the physical appearance was. He looked for another Saul. And so when he came to the family of Jesse, that was David's father, he started out with Eliab, David's oldest brother. And Eliab was more like Saul. He was a good-looking guy, he was strong, he was tall. And so when Samuel saw him, he said, that's the guy that God wants. But we notice in 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So this is where God looks. It's not good looks that God is looking for. Have you noticed how many ugly men that God uses? I think about that every time we have a deacon's meeting. Why did God put me with these guys? I mean, it, it has to be the heart. That must be the thing that's going on here. But, you know, th this is not groundbreaking stuff for you. There's no deep theological things here. I'm just trying to tell you that, that it's better to be David than it is to be Saul. It's better to be a man who has a heart that's right with God. It's better to be a man who leads your children by example. That they can see in your life that you honor God, that you love God, that you want to be God's man. It's better to be David than it is to be Saul. Well, the future looked really bright for Israel. But you can count on this. Ill-conceived plans are never going to turn out well. And it looked like it was going to be good for Saul that he would be the exception. But his heart was the issue. He had no heart for God. Now thirdly, we'll look at the flawed character of Saul. What's actually wrong with him? Well, I think that we do need to be concerned that when we choose leaders, we look for men of good character. God expects a, a very thorough examination of the men that we choose to lead the church. For example, the men that were chosen in Acts 6 to be the first deacons in the church, they were very heavily scrutinized. The apostles gave the church instructions. They said, look for seven men that are of good reputation and choose them to be the head over this administration of the church. So these men were, were looked at for the, those kind of qualities. And then when, when uh, Paul gave the uh, qualifications for pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy, he said the same thing. Look for men of good reputation. Now, the most important qualifications for leadership, for leadership of men in the church, is how do they stack up spiritually? That's the most important thing. Now, they might be good guys, and people might like them, but most of all, what is the spiritual life like? What kind of relationship do they have with the Lord? And, I, and I'll tell you this. Uh, don't think that if you're a member of the church, a man who's a member of the church, that you can escape service to God, that, that it doesn't really matter whether you meet qualifications, every single man in the church ought to be qualified to serve in the church, spiritually qualified. Now there's some of you that might think, well I don't need to know those kinds of things, I don't need to know what pastors know, I don't need to know the Bible. I don't, I don't need to spend time praying like the pastor does, I don't need to spend time studying the Word of God. Well, first I'll tell you that you never know what kind of pastor to choose if you don't. And you'll choose the wrong kind of men if you don't. Every man in the church needs to be qualified for God's service. 
And I really like this one. Sometimes you, you hear people say, I don't need to be at church as much as the pastor needs to be there because he gets paid to be there. Well, I've got news for you. I'm not paid to be spiritual. Now, the Lord made this provision in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that those who serve the Lord give their service to God as a full-time thing that they're to be supported by the church. And the reason that I receive support from you is one thing, so I can eat. I'm not paid to be spiritual. I'm paid so that I can eat. So I'm not any different than any of you. You get paid for the same thing, so you can eat. So what I'm trying to say to you, that every man ought to be a man that the church can call on. That we can say, we need your help over here. Uh, we, we need you to take charge of something. And we shouldn't have to ask, well, is he really qualified? He's a member of the church, but is he qualified? Is he really a spiritual man? No, we, we would see that in your life. And, and we would know that you can actually do more than guard a pew. We're looking for men who'll do something. And we're not concerned about these things like they were concerned with Saul. We're not particularly impressed with your gentleman's quarterly fashions that you wear to church. And I can see that most of you have no idea what gentleman's quarterly is anyway, so I probably didn't need to say that. Your, your wife might think that you're the best looking hunk on the planet. And she, you know, there might be all the Facebook posts that tell everybody about that. That's not what we really want to know. We want to know, where do you stand with God? What kind of man does God think you are? Well, we could go down the list of problems that showed up in Saul. There, were, there was impatience, jealousy, deceit. That's just to name a few. But those are symptoms of his deeper spiritual issue. The really bad flaw that he has is disobedience that flows out of his non-existent relationship with God. Now, a few weeks ago on Mother's Day, I preached on Rahab. And you may remember that I gave a description of the terrible immorality of Canaanites. And those of you that are spiritual men, you remember everything that I said about that. And you remember this, that God said to Joshua, he said, I want you to go in there and I want you to kill all of the Canaanites. And I explained that we have trouble with that. But the truth is that God had done that before. He did it with the flood. He did it at Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's because there comes a time when, when God is totally fed up with extreme wickedness and it comes to the place that God is not going to take it anymore. And there's coming a time to this world when God's not going to take it anymore. And he's going to wrap up this world like a scroll. He's going to roll it up and he's going to crush everyone that is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, God gave one of these Joshua commands to Saul. There were some enemies of God that kept hanging around for centuries. They'd been there since the time of Abraham. And God said, you've got to get rid of them. These were the Amalekites. They were confederate with Canaanites as enemies of Israel. And when Israel was on the way to the Promised Land, the Amalekites tried to stop Israel from reaching the promised land. And that's a picture, I mean, these are all things, spiritual principles for us to learn. That's a picture of how Satan tries to stop us in our progress towards doing the things of God. So these Amalekites, they were enemies of God's people. They tried to stop Israel. Now in 1 Samuel 15, God reminded 
Israel what Amalek did. And here, here they are still fighting with Israel after six centuries. In verses 2 and 3, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now there's God's command once again. Kill them all. Every woman, every man, all the infants, the oxen, the sheep, the camels, the donkeys. Strike them all to the ground. Leave nothing standing. That's tough. We have a hard time dealing with that. It's a tough thing, but God had his purpose in it. Saul had his orders as the king. He was to be an example to Israel to follow God and all that God said to do. He was to obey the Lord, but Saul chose to do otherwise. He did defeat Amalek in battle, but he felt sorry for their king. Their king was King Agag. There's no telling how many Israelites that he had killed. In fact, Samuel said to him later, he said, you've left many women childless. And he meant, you've, you've killed a lot of people and a lot of Israelites. But Saul thought that he knew better. Um, Saul thought that he could save Agag. He didn't kill all the other Amalekites either, because if you know your history, a little bit of Israel's history, you fast forward about 500 years, and you remember a, name, a man by the name of Haman? How that Haman was going to destroy all the Jews, and the Jews were saved by Esther and Mordecai? You know who Haman was? He was an Agagite. That means he was a descendant of King Agag. Now, if there were no Amalekites, there wouldn't have been a Haman. And as far as human history is concerned, if God hadn't saved the day once again, we would still have Amalekites, but there would be no Jews. And there would be no Jesus. And there would be no salvation. But Saul saved Agag, and he looked at all those sheep, and he said, what's the use of killing all of these sheep? Let's get rid of the sick ones. We'll save the rest for lamb chops. And we'll save all the good cattle. Let's have them for T-bones. And God knew what he'd done. So he sent Samuel to confront Saul. And Samuel arrived. And Saul said, I've done all that the Lord commanded me to do. But Samuel's there and he heard the sheep and the cows in the background. And he said, is that so? Then what are all the ba-ba's and the moos that I hear? Saul was a man who was very quick on his feet. And so he said, well, he had a brilliant excuse. He said, oh, I saved them all to have a sacrifice to God, a huge sacrifice to the Lord. Now we look at chapter 15 and verses 22 and 23. And Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And this is what it's all about. God wants people with a heart religion. Not people that can throw a ritual at him. This is what Saul was trying to do. He had a ritual 
to give to God. Rather than obeying him, he's just going to make a sacrifice, go through the ritual. Now what God doesn't want, and you can't call yourself a good Christian if this is what you do, your purpose is to light candles in the church. God's not interested in that. God's not interested in your life. He's not interested in mass if your life is a mess. Really, God's not interested in mass anytime, but you understand the point that I'm trying to make here. The rituals of religion are not a substitute for true religion that comes from the heart. So you can keep your rosaries, or do like some have done and have told me, they just threw their rosaries away so they don't have to look at them anymore. Now here, here's another truth that we learn from this, from Saul's disobedience. You can't have a better plan than God. You can't have a better way of doing God's work than God's way. So we don't have a rock and roll band. And we still use the Bible. And we know that if we get the first, if we get the rock and roll band, and we get rid of the second, we get rid of the Bible, then we'll have a whole lot more bleeding sheep and mooing cows. Lots of bleeding sheep and mooing cows leave piles on the carpet that I don't want to clean up. I'm not interested in having fake Christians in the church. I'm not interested in that at all. So we're going to stick to God's methods. What God requires is total obedience from us. Not 80% obedience. God expects full obedience. He doesn't grade on a curve. So if you get the answer wrong and everybody else get the answer wrong, that doesn't make you right. We have to obey God 100% of the time. Saul started out fine. He looked fine. But outside is not good enough. Spiritually, he was wrong. And that makes him the man that you don't want to be. Now finally, we need to see what happened to him. Number four is the finished kingdom. Now if you're still in chapter 15, look again in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. So Samuel said, Saul, you're done. The kingdom is taken from you. Now what Saul did was to fake some repentance at that point. He cried some crocodile tears. He said to Samuel, oh, I'm sorry for what I've done. It's too bad he never fell on his face before God and told him that he was sorry and repented of the sin. And then as Samuel turned to walk away, Saul reached out and he grabbed his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, well, God has given you a sign. He's torn the, king away, uh, the kingdom away from you and he's given it to someone who's better than you. And the better someone was David, the man after God's own heart. Why was he better? Because he believed God. Because he obeyed God. Saul didn't want to do what David did, and so God took everything away from him. You don't want to be the man that God leaves with nothing. And do you know that's what God's going to do to every man who turns his back on Jesus Christ? And every Christian even who doesn't decide to walk in God's way, he can take everything away from you. You can work your fingers to the bone to gain things in this life, but it's all going to be taken away. And if you don't know Christ, your soul will be taken away as well. Now from this point, Saul's life was in a downward tailspin. And I don't have time for that story, but 
you look at this little saying at the beginning of verse 23, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. And strangely enough, Saul consulted a witch instead of God. His life took on a character of bitterness. He was in constant conflict with David. Many say that Saul suffered from mental illness. He was prone to violent outbursts that were followed by depressed melancholy. And that's a terrible way to end a promising life. Saul was a great fighting man. And in the very last battle of his life, it wasn't the enemy that killed him. He was defeated in battle and he was wounded. And what he decided to do was fall on his own sword and take his own life because he knew that if the enemy captured him, they would torture him. And so when he was dead, the Philistines came and they took his body and they cut off his head. And they took his body and they paraded it around their cities. And they took his head and hung it on display in the temple of their heathen god, Dagon. That's not the man you want to be. Saul was done, rejected by God in a most profound way. But I'll tell you this, that what happened to Saul in his life doesn't match what's going to happen to a sinner in eternity who doesn't know Jesus Christ. You don't want to be the man that dies without Christ. Now very quickly as I sum up, what do we learn from this story? I think we learn first of all that everybody is a nobody without Jesus Christ. A man might look good, he, he might be a stud, he might be popular, people might envy him, but whenever he faces a spiritual enemy, Satan is able to take him captive at his will. Men will brag about all the things that they're big enough to do, but if they aren't men enough to stand for God, they're just like little chihuahuas on a leash, and they just fall around Satan wherever he goes. You are nothing without God's power. I also think that we learn that if you want God's power, you've got to give him full obedience. He never accepts less. And although God never finds perfect people, he does find some men and some women who want to give him their heart. And God can work with that. God can make something out of that. He can make you the person that you ought to be. Now most of you, as I look over the room today, I know you. Most of you, I think, uh, are saved. And I don't need to tell you this, to give your heart to Jesus in salvation. And just to be very clear about that, did you know the Bible never says it that way? It never says to give your heart to Jesus. You know why? Because God doesn't want your heart. Your heart's not worth having. What happens is that God gives you a new heart. And that new heart belongs to Him. And when he gives you that new heart, what you need to do is turn around and give it back to him in service and obedience. And if you'll do that, then that's the man that you ought to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful blessings that you've given. We thank you for your word and the lessons that we learned from it. Lord, I do pray that you help every man and every woman in the church to be the kind of person that you would have them to be. May we give our hearts to you in full obedience. May we never be guilty of rejecting you. But Lord, that always we'd want to follow the ways that you tell us to go. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this church. Speak to some heart today. Either draw men and women closer to you in the relationship that they have with Christ. Or speak to some heart and save that person from their sins. 
Lord, we just pray that your salvation would come to someone today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This one word of encouragement, and I'll be very brief. It's a good thing I ran out of sermon before I ran out of voice because that's where we're headed here. But uh, I, I just want you to, to really grasp that thing, that how God wants that full obedience. And you can so many times just walk the way that you want to go and just ignore the fact that, that God is sovereign over all and God sees what you do and God has an opinion about what you do. And you're going to suffer if you don't give yourself fully to God. Some way, somehow. I don't know exactly all the ways that God can do it, but He tells you you've got to have a heart of obedience if you're God's man. And if you don't, then your life is just not going to go the way that God wants it to go, and you don't want it to go that way. Full obedience is the way to be content with God. So I encourage you, give your heart to Him in that sense today. If you're a saved person, give back to God what He's given to you. And if you don't know Christ, receive Him as Savior today. That's the only way that you're going to see God in heaven. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.